This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. When I was nine, I was involved in a scandal with Cheryl, my 10-year-old next-door neighbor. She and I were caught in the backyard by her grandmother with our shirts unbuttoned and training bras lifted as we joyfully squeezed each other's barely visible breasts. Stop that right now, her grandmother yelled from the back porch. That's nasty. I still remember the shame, hotter than the Missouri summer heat sweeping over my skin. I quickly pulled my bra and top down as though I were Samantha from that TV show, Bewitched, returning us to an earlier time with the wiggle of her nose. Kim, you go home right now, her grandmother said. Before I even got across the driveway that separated our yards, I could hear Cheryl's wails as her grandmother spanked her from the back porch to her bedroom. I spent the rest of the afternoon obsessing about what would happen to me when my mother got home. I prayed this would not be one of those rare times when I got a spanking too. Wait a minute, Cheryl's grandmother doesn't have my mama's work number, I said in a hopeful moment. Maybe mama won't know what happened. Hours later, when I heard my mother's car in the driveway, I rushed to the front door as usual. As soon as I saw her, I knew that she knew. She was not smiling, and she didn't look happy to be home. My heart rose to my throat, then sank down into my stomach where it stayed the rest of the night. After I changed my clothes, we need to have a talk, she said. She walked past me without pausing for the usual kiss to the cheek. Dang, I thought. Even in my head, it was the only curse word I could say at that age. When she called me into her room, I slyly scanned the bed where she sat, and thankfully, I did not see a belt nearby. I got a call from Cheryl's grandmother today, she said, clearly trying to contain her anger. Uh-oh, I thought. You know it's not right for girls to touch each other that way, don't you, my mother said. She wasn't asking. She'd obviously taken Cheryl's mean old grandmother's side without questioning if what she said was true. Adults always stick together, I thought. Yes, Mama, I said aloud. Good. Now let's get this over with. We're going to talk to Cheryl's family before I start dinner. Oh, it was bad enough that I had been yelled at by that woman next door, wondered all afternoon if I was going to get the whipping of my life, and suffered through this lecture with my mother. Now we had to talk to Cheryl's parents, too? It wasn't right. <laughs> of course, as a black child with a black mother, I did not say this out loud. <laughs> Instead, I obediently took the walk of shame back across the driveway. Cheryl's parents and grandmother were sitting in their living room looking just as tired and irritated as my mother. The circle of adults was terrifying. I could not look at Cheryl. She and I cried as they confronted us with the horrors of our transgression, and through our sobs, we both promised to never do that to each other again. 
For the next week, we could only play on the front porch of her house where her grandmother could keep an eye on us. Cheryl and I never spoke of the incident again, and neither did anyone else. As an enlightened adult, I know Cheryl and I were just acting on a curiosity that many children have as they notice the changes in their bodies and those of their close peers. And as is often the case, the adults in our lives projected onto us their own insecurities about sex and sexuality. That can really fuck a kid up. I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri in the 1960s and 1970s. Although there were remnants of San Francisco's free love culture imported to my hometown, my family doubled down on a kind of Christian love that was practiced by those whose righteous Sunday mornings were preceded by sin-filled Friday and Saturday nights. It was an environment where silence could be a terrible drug that made you complicit in the shaming of others and yourself. I doubt that there's a link from the incident with Cheryl to me coming out as a lesbian some 25 years later, but there is most certainly a line connecting my shame to my silence and participation in the ridicule directed towards people who identified as or were thought to be homosexuals at least before I owned my own sexual identity. When I was a kid and for a long time after, that word homosexual was said with just a tinge of disgust by members of my family and other people around me. Of course, that's if the word was said at all. Information about sexuality was so censored that until I was near the end of middle school, I wasn't sure that it was possible to be black and homosexual. Up until then, the only people who were pointed out to me as homosexual or later gay were white guys in a bohemian area of town that my family sometimes passed through. And free love definitely had its price. Those people in that neighborhood were often barefoot, dirty, and high, and the police always had someone in handcuffs. They were to be prayed for. When I met Snooky and Cornell, two gay cousins who were brothers on my stepfather's side of the family, I thought they were hilarious. They entered a room with a flourish and flailed their hands about when they told stories. They also reveled in the platform shoes, floral prints, and loud color combinations of the 1970s. They were dangerously glorious to me. And now that I think about it, Wearing such colorful ensembles was something they had in common with the pious men in our family who were known to wear yellow, red, even purple suits with matching shirts, socks, and shoes to church on Sundays. <laughs> At family gatherings, Snooky and Cornell were the subjects of crude jokes that made me laugh. Their manhood was always questioned. And even before the AIDS crisis hit Kansas City, they endured the ignorance of relatives who wiped off anything Snooky and Cornell had touched first, as though the gay could rub off on them. Occasionally, this kind of cruel love broke through their I don't give a fuck facades, and they leave in tears, trailed by the victorious laughter of a suspiciously vicious, often male relative. 
Even though I was complicit in their taunting and pity, my young heart recognized Snooky and Cornell as brave because they did not hide who they were. When I was older, I overheard my mother ask their mother how she dealt with both her sons being gay. And her response was, I can't do anything about it. They're my sons and I love them. I wish I'd heard something like that when I was growing up. To be fair though, I always knew my parents loved me. And contrary to the popular narrative about black churches, I didn't grow up in a faith community where gay people were demonized from the pulpit. But I knew there were expectations about how people could love and be loved. And those expectations created a line in the sand separating acceptable from abhorrent in a love the sinner, hate the sin kind of way. The pressure of towing that line had the effect of delaying my sexual exploration, even though black queer people were all around me in college. I went to school in Iowa, a place to which I never planned to return. <laughs> what happened in Iowa could have stayed in Iowa, but I could not let myself cross that line. I'd seen what could happen when you move from acceptable to abhorrent in the example of my older cousin, Michael. I'd mostly known him from the large Sears hand-colored portrait perched on my grandparents' living room mantle. In it, he is a dark chocolate four-year-old sitting on a rocking horse and wearing a white cowboy hat, red and white button-down check shirt, jeans with red chaps, and little black cowboy boots with spurs. In the portrait, he had my maternal grandmother's high cheekbones and his father's curly black hair peeking from beneath the hat. He was smiling. And in the tradition of the portrait style, his cheeks looked rosy and he had what appeared to be lipstick on his tiny mouth, which was filled with perfect little white teeth. The last time I saw him in person, he was wearing a slightly matted curly Afro wig, a crop top, shorts that were high enough to expose part of his butt cheeks and women's pumps. His skin and legs, his, the skin on his legs and arms was ashy and marked with darker lines and scabs. His face was puffy and covered by a thin layer of foundation that did not match his dark complexion. I was in high school at the time and he was in his late 20s, but he looked so much older. I was stunned. My mother gave me that look that said, we will talk about this later. And I took that look as my cue to swallow my shock and I tried not to stare at him. I also knew that we would not talk about this later. By then he'd been a sex worker in Los Angeles and a drug user for many years after coming out as gay. And now he was back among people who didn't understand how hard their love had been on them. I too loved Michael, but I could not I did not want to be him. So I learned to stay on the acceptable side of the line. I worshiped the line. I protected the line. I even projected the line onto others. And over time, I hated that line. But I did not cross it until I knew I would be okay without that line serving as the measure of my worthiness as a human being. 
This story was produced by Jorge Silva, curated by Andrew Riley, directed by Max Spitz, and music and sound design by Allison Hines. The Second Story podcast is produced by me, Liv Oaf. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, our 2018 to 2019 season sponsor, Skadden, Arp, Slate, Meager, and Floam, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Liv Oaf, and this, this is, is the Second, Second Story Podcast.